This episode of the Sunday Salon is sponsored by Number 3 London Dry Gin. For London Design Festival, the brand is putting on an exclusive event for gin lovers to discover its award-winning liquid, the only gin to have ever been voted world's best gin four times. Taking place at the Bankside Hotel on Tuesday the 17th of September, the festival's official spirit sponsor will invite guests to sip their way through a series of experiences designed to educate about gin just as it should be. What's more, guests will leave with a complimentary, personalised gin print, a unique piece of artwork created in collaboration with a scientific photographer through a process which explores gin in microscopic detail. The event celebrates the brand's Art of Perfection campaign and distinctive new bottle design which hits shelves in October. Tickets for the gin print can be purchased via the London Design Festival website. Hello and welcome to the Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Zania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories and the joy that books can bring no matter what genre or style. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but for the best experience, I really recommend using the new app Entail, which will allow you to look at exclusive pictures as we talk, click on links, even shop the books featured. It's truly amazing. My guest this week is Lottie Jeffs. I've known Lottie for five years. She was once my editor at ES Magazine. Since then, she has been deputy editor and then acting editor-in-chief of Elle Magazine, a columnist for the Evening Standard, and has even worked in advertising. Her new book, How to Be a Gentlewoman, draws on a host of personal and professional experiences to detail how she found her inner confidence and shows you how you can too. It's really honest and warm and wise, and I absolutely loved it. So Lottie, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Alice. Uh, Let's start with the book. How would you describe it and what made you write it? Okay, well, this is the first time I have described the book to anyone that isn't my mother, so bear with me. Um, It is part memoir and it's part self-help, but really I hope that it is a source of comfort in hard times. So your own hard times and also Mm -hmm. the hard times societally that we're all currently living through. Mm. It is built on a thematic developing chapter structure so I cover things such as being alone being a family being in clothes and being online but throughout this I interweave my own personal journey of becoming a gentlewoman which is more of the memoir element so that's a story of of loss of a bad relationship of divorce all sorts of uh, other things that I'll try not to spoil um, in advance And as well as that, there's another element to the book, which is interviews with some brilliant gentlewomen on different subjects. So I've spoken to my cousin Romy, who's in a band called The XX. I've spoken to a happiness consultant, an archaeologist, a psychologist, a drag queen, a transgender activist, uh, my friend, the amazing author Elizabeth Day, 
a celebrity stylist. There's all sorts of other voices in there, so it's not just me droning on myself the whole time. <laughs> it's also quite rich in references, so references to high and popular culture, which reflects my own interest in both of those things. So from poetry and philosophy and economic theory to Ariana Grande and RuPaul. Each chapter ends with gentle suggestions, so these are fun listicles, a bit more lighthearted, that suggest tips for being more of a gentlewoman. I think it's quite different from normal self-help books in that I include quite a ephemera of different bits and bobs. Uh, so mm. there's like a recipe for a risotto, there's a guide to making my own favourite cocktail, and then there's reasons why it's so important to make your bed every day, alongside this deeper story that I was talking about, which is my own uh, story of kind of becoming. Mm, mm. And you said so much there that I want to pick up on, but before I do, um, the the word gentlewoman, you start the book actually by kind of dissecting and analysing that word gentlewoman and the word gentle, and particularly the negative connotations we have with gentle. Mm. Can you tell me about that and why you've decided to reclaim those words? So I'll start maybe with a little definition of what I mean by a gentlewoman. So what I mean is she's basically the coolest woman that you know. That woman <laughs> that when you meet up with her or you go for a drink with her, you come away feeling really good about yourself, really seen, really comforted. And she's sort of somebody that you want to be, that you really look up to, but in a way that feels achievable and not alienating or cold um, there's a warmth to her so my definition of a gentlewoman which is in the book is that she's someone who meets the the brutal pressures of living in uh, our relentlessly busy society uh, with thoughtfulness with care and with kindness so to herself first but also to others and a gentlewoman pays attention to the small details and there's quite a lot of references to these small details in the book that combine to create a good life and she has a powerful presence um, and she doesn't need to shout to make herself heard but she is incredibly kind of confident and sure about herself and key to that sure that sort of surety of, of self is the idea of knowing yourself and being comfortable with yourself and you describe your own journey in in that regard and, and that's actually one of my favorite things about the book is is the kind of personal side of it um, and there's several key moments along the way um, your cousin Billy's death uh, your first visit to a lesbian bar <laughs> uh, the end of a controlling relationship um, a long-term controlling relationship can you tell me about those and how they shaped your understanding of yourself I think the death of my cousin Billy who was more like a sister to me um, she was 31 when she died of a brain tumor I think she was diagnosed when she was maybe 26. Um, her death at the end of a long illness felt like a real make or break turning point moment for me in my life. Up until that point, I'd also been in this very depressing, controlling, emotionally abusive, I'd go as far to say, relationship. And Billy's death made me really consider my own life and how wonderful and lucky I was to be alive. Um, so 
it gave me the courage that I needed to get out of this relationship and feel like I was worth looking after, uh, looking after myself mainly first. So that felt like a real turning point for me. And I'd actually been having therapy throughout my cousin Billy's illness. And I feel like that was a hugely helpful thing for me and helped me put a narrative to all of these things that were kind of happening to me. And it felt like chaos, but having therapy put it in a more linear order and made me feel like I could be at the beginning of something and I could be at the end of something and I could take control of that story and make it my own. So um, that was the moment that I started really thinking about myself. I hadn't really been thinking about myself up until that point. I had just been a collection of experiences, many of them quite negative experiences. I'd lost all sense of who I was. Things were just happening to me they weren't things that I had agency over and I realised it was time to exercise some agency in my life and think what did I want, what would happiness be like for me, um, where, how did I want to live, how did I want to be with my friends, um, what did I want for my future, what did I want for my work. So I really started thinking about this and therapy helped me give it a structure and a framework And so I left my uh, ex-partner really a a few months, I think, after my cousin Billy died. It all happened at the same time. And that really was the beginning of this journey that I've been on that I talk about in the book of becoming a better version of myself and learning Mm. to really like myself and to know myself. Um, And it's really from that baseline that then you can build on your life and it can become rich in amazing, happy, positive, fulfilling experiences. Was it difficult writing about those personal experiences and and is it difficult talking about them? I didn't find it difficult because I feel like I'd been writing it in my head for a long time. I think sometimes as writers, you that's how you process the things that happen to you. You kind of start featurizing them in your mm. in your mind mm. and giving them a beginning and a middle and an end and I felt like that's why therapy was helpful for me because it helped me do that I don't find it difficult to talk about now certain things are like tr- emotional triggers for me and they're always quite unexpected um, and actually writing the book I would say I found more cathartic than anything I feel like I was going to tell this story one way or another I didn't know how it was gonna come out and it's maybe not how I expected it was gonna come out. I thought maybe one day I'd write like a traditional memoir um, and I think when I started writing this book, I thought it might be a bit more uh, kind of pithy and uh, sassy and fun and it sort of, it is those things but it's also something else and I think that something else surprised me and it surprised my editor <laughs> um, and I'm just grateful that the women that I've worked with on this book were happy to let me just run with it and take it where it went. It's interesting you say that because I mean one of the things you said at the start that that is so um, unique about the book is that it combines it does still have those kind of pithy sassy elements it combines the 
um, you know, recipes for risotto or uh, cocktails or whatever with these um, kind of more profound spiritual journeys that you go on. Uh, spiritual, I mean, I use that word, you know what I mean, that's these emotional journeys. Um, and um, one of the one of the sort of sections that fuses that is when you talk about the importance of spending time alone and you outline mm. a five step plan for getting comfortable spending time alone yes can you tell me about that and and why the yeah. why you think it's so important so i think personally on this journey as much as i hate that word to really getting to know and like myself being on my own with myself was integral to that and I would say to readers that that is almost one of the first things that you need to do to become a gentlewoman is to be happy in your own company and not need anyone or anything else because you are kind of your best friend as cheesy and cliched as that sounds I I really think there's something in it so I did come up with this five-step uh, program of like being on, learning to enjoy your own company, and so it starts with things like just going out for breakfast on your own because some people can feel quite intimidated to go out for dinner on their own. You kind of feel like there's a bit more pressure. Maybe people are looking at you, um, you know, thinking maybe your date didn't turn up or you don't have any friends. Whereas breakfast feels a bit more of a like safe meal to enjoy on your own so I talk about that and I talk about taking your time not feeling rushed just because you're on your own doesn't mean you should down your coffee really quickly and get out the way so a couple can come and sit at your table no take your time take the papers order another coffee really enjoy just being in your own company I suggest taking a notebook or having a notebook with you all the time and just kind of maybe writing some things down even if you're not a writer um, just kind of make some notes about what holidays you want to go on that year things you maybe want to see at the cinema or people you haven't been in touch with for a while um it's a good opportunity to just kind of do those sort of things um and then i talk about graduating to more of like an experience day on your own where uh, you go off and do something really nice without a date and what i'm urging people to do is not just think oh because you're on your own like for example when you want to go for lunch if you're out and about oh I'll just grab a sandwich because it's just me I don't need to sit down somewhere I don't need to spend the money I'm saying no you do and you should treat yourself how you would Mm. treat someone that you were with that you really wanted to impress you'd want to go to a nice place and sit down and have a nice lunch or um, you know go on a nice walk or do anything nice and special with somebody else do that for yourself uh, so I talk about going to the cinema on your own as a kind of nice way of easing into being in your own company because there is a limit to like how much you can just listen to the relentless throng of your own interior monologue yeah. until you go a bit mad. Um, so I talk about cinema being a good option and then also maybe taking some time out and going away on a mini break on your own Um but maybe limiting it to a couple of days. So as I said, you don't sort of get driven mad by yourself. Um, and eventually, you know, you should be able to just like turn up at a party on your own without a plus one and feel entirely as confident as you would if you had a wingman or woman by your side, because 
you kind of like yourself and also the great thing about being on your own is you can just do what the heck you like so if you don't like the party you can just leave you don't yeah. have to worry about what someone else thinks or if somebody else wants to stay or if you don't want to talk to people you can just go and maybe I mean I think I advise talking to three new people if you can and staying as long as it takes you to finish your first drink but then you can just go um, and nobody's going to think any less of you so I think a lot of people will hopefully find something within that chapter about being alone that inspires them and makes them want to just go on a date with themselves. You also talk, uh, you devote a chapter to work and you talk about the importance of showing vulnerability uh, at work. Can you tell me why you think that's important? I think it's important because I think it makes for better work in the end. I think the places I've worked where people feel like they can be the most authentically themselves and they don't have to put on this act or be quote unquote professional at all times, they're the places that I feel like have produced the most creative, most innovative, Mm -hmm. most interesting and fun work. So that's the first thing. And then also I think that thinking that you have to be different at work, that you have to steal yourself for this professional experience where people expect you to be a certain way, I think it really contributes to this fracturing of self that women in particular, I think, experience um, in this day and age. And I don't think it's good for us. Mm. I think putting ourselves in little boxes like our work self, our friends self, the person that we are with our family, the person that we are with our partner, having all of these different bits of ourselves in different boxes, I think it contributes to this really fractured and unconnected, disparate feeling of self that we should really work to overcome. And I did that myself and I realized that I was a lot happier when I was kind of the same person at work as I was with my friends, with my family, with my new partner, um, it made me feel a bit more joined up as a person and that made me happier. Another thing you write about relating to work is this very unusual and intense period of your career. Um, You were deputy editor of Elle for two years and while you were there you um, won a ton of plaudits, you were writer of the year, you were shortlisted for columnist of the year, and then you were acting editor-in-chief for six months um, while also applying for that job. And, I mean, you were under all this scrutiny from other people in the industry. Uh, magazine world is quite, um, you know, it's quite a gossipy world. Everyone mm. always wants to know what's going on at other mm. titles. Um And you write about the pressure to stay calm in that situation, Mm. which I imagine must have been immense. Can you tell me a bit about that and how 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 you did stay calm? I think the main thing was I just really enjoyed it. I just thought, this is an amazing opportunity. I didn't expect to be in charge of Elle magazine. I expected to carry on being deputy editor to the brilliant editor-in-chief Lorraine Candy for as long as I could be. Um, I wish it could have been a bit longer, but 
it was kind of handed to me and it was my dream job and I just thought this is absolutely brilliant this is so fun I get to do amazing things I get to go to fashion shows I get to travel I get to interview really cool celebrities like Kristen Stewart I get to be in charge of an amazing inspirational bunch of intelligent women who every day forced me to up my game in every possible way and I get to be creative and to make decisions and to make something that I could really put myself into and that felt like an incredible privilege so I think I never stopped feeling that that was something I should really enjoy and you introduced yourself to Anna Winter, is that right? I did. <laughs> I mean, I think saying, like, I got to know her would be wildly overstating it. But I just had this thing of, like, there were all these rules in the fashion world of things you should or shouldn't say, should or shouldn't wear. I sometimes felt like I was in, like, a Japanese tea ceremony where you could you, you kind of, like... Or in Japanese culture where you're not actually allowed to say no. You have to, like... Sc- traverse a conversation in a way where you insinuate that you don't want to do something without actually saying it and so I feel like I went into this world naively blind to all of these um, ways of doing things in the fashion world and I I kind of refused to play that game I Mm. felt like I was different anyway so I might as well continue just being myself and being normal with people like If I'm sitting next to someone on a bench waiting for a fashion show, I'm going to turn to them and say, hey, this is my, my name's Lottie. I'm from Elle. What do you, you know, how's your day been? What have you been up to? How are you feeling about this? Like I'd make conversation with people and I feel like that was quite rare. Um, Obviously people in the industry that know each other do all speak to each other, but there was kind of this unspoken rule that you just kind of you know looked at your phone um and didn't really engage with people that you didn't know um so yeah I just tried to be myself in a world where I think maybe some people don't feel like they can be themselves so what what did you actually say to Anna Winter and what did she say I think I just said hello I'm Lottie I'm the acting editor-in-chief of Elle and I think she couldn't care less you know (laughs) I don't think but at the same time it just seemed weird that there's this aura around her where you know you don't speak to her you don't make eye contact she's just a normal person why wouldn't you just talk to her like a like a normal person um obviously she's quite terrifying but (laughs) I think that you know that's like becomes a sort of self-fulfilling narrative about her um where maybe if you just said hey you know maybe you'd break the ice I mean obviously I didn't but um I'm proud of myself for at least trying um you didn't get the top job at L which must have been difficult in its own way and then you did something that was quite unusual in that you you left the magazine industry um and went into advertising. And I want to ask you about going into advertising, but before we kind of get onto that, I'm I'm very interested in what you've written about when you talk about grieving mm. for a job. You, you've written about it in the book. You've also written articles about it before. Um, can you tell me about that? 
I think it's something that a lot of people go through, but we don't have the vocabulary to really express it. But when you love a job, like I loved Elle, and you really invest so much of yourself into your work and into the people you work with, when you leave that job, particularly when it's not your choice, you're made redundant or you're sacked, um, it can be really hard. It can feel like a proper breakup or indeed a death in a sense because you're no longer a part of something that was really integral to you and perhaps became integral to the way you saw yourself in the world. So for me, working at L was like an extension of myself. And when people asked me what I did, to say I worked for Elle magazine was like saying I'm a particular kind of person and I had particular kind of values and I was cool and I was interested in fashion, but I was feminist and I was interested in pop culture. And it was like a shorthand for all of those things that I wanted people to know about myself. So having that severed was really hard. Um, and it was kind of like this process of grieving, this seven stage process of grieving, which is like shock and denial, anger, um, and then eventually coming to terms with it and being able to move on. But it definitely took me a long time to get over it. Like I kept having these recurring dreams every night, dreaming about colleagues and about Elle and things that happened. It was like so deeply embedded in my subconscious that it took me a long time to to really let go of it and I think that we don't talk about work in an emotional way we don't talk about the the way that it gets under our skin and really affects our way of being in the world but we spend so much time at work it's such a huge part of our life particularly when we work in an office um I think it's mad that we don't talk about it in the same way that we talk about other things in our lives like our relationships or our family um so yes work grief was something that I felt really viscerally it kind of started to annoy me in the end that I couldn't get over it um I should I should have been able to get over it quicker than I did but I just felt the loss of it and I felt sad that I wasn't a part of this thing that I had so loved being a part of and it took me a while to get over that sadness um but yeah I got there eventually and how did your move into advertising come about so I think towards the end of my time at L I started to think about what I could do with my skills as an editor and a writer that wasn't necessarily in magazines and I started to meet with some headhunters and told them about what I did as an editor and as a writer and it became clear that actually there was a bit of crossover with being a creative director in an advertising agency in that you are coming up with ideas so both jobs are really about ideas and then about how you um, bring those ideas to life with words with images so I realized that actually what I was doing as an editor was quite similar to what a creative director in advertising could do. Um, and then I just went and met a few big agencies and really hit it off with uh, the people at the agency that eventually hired me. And they just kind of took a bit of a risk on me and they hired me as a creative director and just told me to do things differently and do things how I wanted to do things, which was an amazing grief and a really incredible learning experience 
um, I just wish I could have made some more work while I was there. Did you struggle with imposter syndrome or? I think imposter syndrome is something that I have never really felt, honestly. I kind of just feel like everyone else is as insecure and terrified as I am. I just see the humanity of people in situations and so I don't ever feel like I'm less than them. I know that sort of confidence can sound potentially a bit arrogant but it's not that I it's not that I don't feel it it's just that I choose to not entertain those feelings like I just think I have every right to be doing what I'm doing and I'm no better or worse at it than anyone else and we're all in the same boat so I think I'm lucky that I have that kind of core confidence in me and I Mm. think it's something that going on this um process of getting to really know myself and and feel secure and find the anchor within myself uh, that I talk about in the book has really helped me with that because I think I haven't felt a lot of insecurities that my straight female friends feel and I do sometimes wonder if it is anything to do with sexuality and not seeing myself in opposition to or in relation to men in the same way that I know some straight women do it kind of frees me up to feel like I can just be myself and be different and not have to conform to expectations and so maybe that's something to that's do with fascinating that. you because you also write in the book about your decision to become a mother mm-hmm. um you and your wife Jenny's mm-hmm. decision to have your daughter mm-hmm. um and you talk about the fact that because it wasn't a biological inevitability mm-hmm. you uh can you you gave it that extra kind of level of consideration mm. that some people might not and how in fact that was a blessing really and um, something that perhaps everyone could learn from can you tell me about that? Definitely I think in the book I actually urge everybody to be a bit more gay um, which is not me sort of flaunting a, an agenda um, but it's more like what I mean by be more gay is just think a bit like queer your own thinking of what's expected of you in life if you go through life with this the weight of heteronormative expectations on your shoulders. Mm. If you have to choose not to conform to expectations of gender um, in a relationship, for example, you're still having to engage with those expectations in order to reject them. Whereas if you're gay, you don't really have to engage with those expectations at all anyway. So you start from a more equal and even standpoint in the world. So, for example, Jenny and I, when it came to having children, we had to have really frank conversations about what we wanted from our future, from our family lives. We had to really, really think about having a child. And it became, you know, a real moral dilemma about what the right thing, the right way to have a child would be. Should it be an anonymous donor? Should it be a known donor? What was the kindest thing for our unborn child how would we explain it to them it became such a sort of amazingly 
rich and ongoing conversation that by the time that we actually got pregnant, I, it had almost become like this abstract thing and I couldn't believe that it had actually happened. But I do think that there is really something to be said for really challenging yourselves in your relationships. So as well, like for example, with emotional labor or with who does what chores around mm. the house if you're in a straight relationship, why? Why should it be the man that does this or the woman that does that? Um, I know less and less things are conforming to those quite old fashioned stereotypes, but I think just being so conscious of them in a, and able to challenge them um, and to really put a, a sort of extra layer of thought into things like starting a family could really benefit everyone. Can you tell me about your decision to go freelance and what your life is like now doing that? Um, it's a real mix of amazing days like today I led the most smug London media life you could possibly do where I went and sat in the sun by the pool of a members club and wrote on my laptop and just felt like every awful cliche of a freelancer but today was a good day there are other days where it's just really hard and you miss working in an office and you're on your own and you're sitting in like a Frankie and Benny's trying to get a Wi-Fi password because you need to file something and it's not glamorous and it's not particularly fulfilling so it's this constant battle being freelance it's really not easy and I do really miss working in an office for so many reasons I, I miss particularly working in a woman's magazine office where everyone is just so funny and bright and tuned into the zeitgeist and making sure you know about what to read what to listen to uh, what's going on on social media I just have never felt more in the white hot center of popular culture than I've ever felt when I've worked in a magazine office so freelancing is great for me at the moment because I've got a young daughter and my wife and I split the week so we do a couple of days working and a couple of days looking after our daughter each per week um, so it's really good for this particular moment in my life but do I want to be a freelance writer slash creative consultant for the rest of my life I don't think so I think I'd miss being around people too much and what do you like as a writer how do you structure your time and where do you do you, do you write a particular time of day or yes. work from a particular place I wrote this book mainly in the British Library which I loved because there's this amazing ritual of having to check in your bag and put a few things in this British Library plastic bag where you're not allowed to take certain things in with you so you can't take pens um, you can take your laptop you can take pencils and a notebook and there was something about that leaving of things behind that felt like a shedding of distractions so then I would go and write in a little corner I had some favorite places of um, the newsroom was a really good place and then I found this little corner in the sciences room which overlooked um, the St Pancras Hotel and I would just hole up in these corners of the British Library surrounded by people getting these like incredible dusty tomes off books and uh, off shelves and um, making notes and like it felt like such a a learned place and everybody was so studious and serious and focused that 
you kind of had to be like that. So it really got me into the zone. And I think maybe that's when my book started to take on all of these other references to like Philip Larkin poems, Elizabeth Jennings, Plato, Simone de Beauvoir, Sartre. Like I was in this place surrounded by all of these books and they sort of just seeped into my narrative in a way that I don't think they would have done if I was on the roof of Soho House. Have you always wanted to be a writer? Is this what you aspired to? Yes, I think I have. I think I've actually always wanted to be a magazine editor. When I was a kid, um, as well as being a ridiculous warrior, I was also the editor-in-chief of the Beena Gardens newsletter, which was something that I just made for my parents and (laughs) commissioned my dad to do the illustrations and got a friend to do the fashion column. And I filled it with fascinating tidbits of gossip from the street and um, photocopied it at our local news agents and like handed it out to the other residents of the street so I actually recently found a copy of this um, newsletter magazine and it's it's just so funny but I think that I always wanted to be the an editor because it was about collating and curating news and views and that's obviously something that I've always wanted to to do. So, um, yes, it's the short answer. We're actually running out of time, so I'm going to have to let you go soon. But before I do, um, a couple of final things. You're obviously very busy. We're speaking before the book's out, but actually it will be out by the time people, can, people are listening, so everyone can buy it. Uh, you're very busy with that, of course. But what else... Uh, do you have on the horizon what would you like to do next I mean would you take a nice holiday (laughs) yeah Um, I honestly don't know I'm at this really sort of interesting impasse in my career where I currently don't have a full time office job I'm freelancing I'm really enjoying freelancing I mean the idea now of a five day week and commuting and being in an office all day feels like completely um, brutal (laughs) and I'm really enjoying the freedom of being freelance and having a family Um, so I'm hoping to just do a bit more of that kind of work and yeah see what happens I don't have any huge plans at the moment I'm kind of waiting to see how the book's received Um, maybe I'll write another book I don't know exciting Um, And my final question, which is a question I ask everyone uh, who comes on, which is, if you could go back um, and give your younger self uh, one piece of advice, uh, what would it be? I think when I was a kid, I was a real worrier. I I actually had uh, little worry dolls that were like these little Mexican worry dolls that you had... Yeah, they came in a little box and there were like 12 of them and every night you told each doll a worry and then you put them in the box and then you slept on them and it makes me feel so sad for myself that like at 12 years old I was telling 12 little worry dolls like 12 worries what did I have to worry about at that age I was I was so anxious and I had no reason to be anxious and in the end the worst possible thing which was my dear cousin who I loved so much died and like I could never have known that when I was a kid Um, and had I thought that was ever a possibility that would have really been something to worry about 
instead I worried about so much stuff that actually then when something really bad did happen, I'd spent so much time worrying about stupid things. I was already like in a state of absolute anxiety. I wish I had just enjoyed being like okay so that when something bad did happen I was in a better place to deal with it um, rather than projecting and worrying about things I didn't need to worry about so I think I would have just told myself to just chill out and throw those worry dolls away and just be a kid and you know bad things tragedies things are going to happen in life but the best thing you can do is enjoy the moments when everything's fine because then when things aren't fine, you're in a more secure um, and balanced place and you can deal with those things in a calmer way. That's very, very good advice and a wonderful note to end on. Lottie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank, thank you. you, Alice. It's been such a joy. Thank you. Thank you. And to everyone listening, How to Be a Gentlewoman is out now. So that's it from me. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alicezania. And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it, as well as its position in the charts. So until next week, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.